If you're a tech company and you're trying to sell to a program, if you are a program with an ambitious goal, map your nose. It's a stakeholder mapping. Find all the people you need to influence or the people that need to be informed or who has the ability, not necessarily the authority, but the ability to put up that blocker and actually understand what they're motivated by. Like what's in it for them? This is All Quiet on the Second Front. Podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Join me, Tyler Sweat, and my second front comrades as we dismantle the mundane, cut through the bureaucratic BS to demystify the world of defense tech. But be warned, this is not a typical government podcast. Ready to get weird? This is a Soul Fire production. Welcome to another episode of All Quiet on the Second Front, the podcast where boring defense talk goes to die. I'm your host, Tyler Sweat. Guy started saying this a lot now, but I am very excited to have another good friend here sharing some wisdom, some experience, and uh, hopefully a hot take or two. So Meg Metzger from Decode. Like everyone knows Decode by name. They know you by name, but tell everybody a little bit about you, some of the background, how'd you get here, and then what's Decode? What's it working on? What's the future look like? Oh, man. There's... Let's see. What do people actually want to know about me? (laughs) Well, I'll put it this way. I started Decode. Um, People say, did you get some government funding? How did Decode get started? And I say, I was a very concerned taxpayer. So I started out my career putting fingers on keyboard and coding for one of the large systems integrators. And I remember at that time, I went to my boss and I said, why are they paying us this much money to build this shitty of software when we could just go buy it off the shelf. That obviously is not well taken when it's a time and materials contract. And I was politely told to sit back down. But that I always say that's my per, my first point of inception for what became Decode. It's like, hey, this is not, this doesn't work for me. I am an entrepreneur just deep down in every in every fiber of my being, um, stemming up a long line of entrepreneurs in my family. And so I met a a retired Air Force colonel on an airplane, and he said, I'm starting a company. Do you want to come join? I said, what will I be doing? He says, I have no idea. But I said, let's go. And what we really were doing was IT strategy and acquisition support back into the government customers. So I always say that job was points, uh, inception points two and three for me. One was I had to live the pain of growing and scaling a business in the federal government market, right? So one day I'm the facility security officer, the next day I'm managing a $60 million IDIQ. You name it, I had to touch it. And we went from the five little folks sitting in a room hacking at things to 80 people in under a year, Washington Technology Fast 50. It was a freaking wild ride. It was awesome. But the second point was we were actually supporting government and buying tech. And We could not get to the capabilities we needed because the contracting staff just couldn't get out of their own way. You know, they wouldn't be creative. They weren't willing to understand at this point what cloud computing was or how mobile capabilities worked, right? So we bought 700 servers at less than 5% capacity just in case because they didn't want to explore using the cloud. So I said, enough is enough. Uh, I left um, there and I became the COO for a firm because I wanted to get back to my technical roots and we were doing rapid prototyping of tech um, in the cloud and mobile space. Really, really cool stuff. We had the, um, the ability to go find tech from the valley. This was back before it was cool. And we'd say, here's a check. We want to prototype your tech. And they would say, no, thank you. I'm not working with the government. Or they would say, yep, I'm on board. 
And then they would just muck, like just muck everything up. So we had to teach them courses to keep us out of trouble because they weren't, they, you know, they didn't understand all the minutia that we you know, take for granted that we know. Yep. So anyways, that's a, the long-winded story of how we got to decode. Uh, I've had to build it. I've had to help them buy it. I've had to help folks navigate it. And I said, there's no way to bring all this together to help people get out of their own way. So at the core of Decode, it's always been, how do we get better tech into the missions that need it so the government can be better at their jobs? And we're going to help tech operate differently. We're going to help the government operate differently and come together in the middle. And so here we are. I love the way you talk about it because conversations we see all the time, and I always equate it to folks sort of like screaming into the wind, right? Shriek into the wind of like, oh, they need to buy different or, oh, they need to deliver different. And it's how do we get these constituencies that have very different incentive structures and operating models and business systems, how do we get them, one, to understand and sort of be able to translate across, and two, you know, either have the empathy or the EQ or the awareness on how those work so that we can get into synchronization? So I don't know if you want to pick the sort of tech side first or the government side first, but there's, there's challenges in each I think it's easy to throw the dart just the government or just the private sector. Um, where where are you spending time? Where do you seeing is as some of the challenges you're working through right now? Um, all right, I'm gonna throw it back. Dealer's choice. You want to talk tech or government first? Let's go government first. Yeah, so we're we're tackling quite a bit of stuff. One, you know, you you said empathy, and I would say I bring a lot of empathy to the major functions of the government that have to work differently to bring the tech in and to scale it. You know, especially this time of the year, we're in August, contracting staff is under a pile of paper with like a gun to their head saying, get all this done, put this on contract. It landed on their desk a day late and a yep. dollar, right? Um, so when are they supposed to have the time to step back and think about how could I do this differently? How can I be more innovative? And actually understand what tech is out there. So. You know, when we look at things like how should we bring in and scale data, you know, private sector data companies or our AI companies, you know, you pick any commercial technology that the government needs, how you have to buy them is drastically different. You know, and and it, it, that sounds overwhelming, but there's really just some core places that that need to change. That might be how we handle IP rights, you know, for example. A tech company's motivation is, you know, their product and their IP is how they make money, right? That is, that's the sole business. Very different from a systems integrator who is capturing the services and the, you know, the time and materials, my crass thing of butts and seats, right? The models and the incentives are very, very different. So we can't put the same language out and expect them to bid because they're dead on arrival, right? So there's a lot of things in the weeds like that. But I, I would say when we go into an organization, we're going to look at a kind of the framework of the culture, the processes, the policies, the acquisitions, and the budgeting. And all five of those things can be navigated wildly different. And then I'll say dealer's choice, which one you actually would want to talk about. But um, probably biggest in there is going to be the culture piece. But we overinterpret the heck out of policies. There's a lot there that we could do today. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I would be, and not to hit you with an Uno reverse card, right? Yeah. Instead of picking one of the five, yeah, 
What I heard that I think was really, really interesting and something that's often probably just taken for granted is, hey, that contracting shop or that procurement analyst or that team is overwhelmed. In more cases than not, they are under-resourced. And the majority of contracting officers don't have travel funding. So their teams aren't able to be out at, you know, tech expo or conference A through Z where I think a lot of folks who maybe are on like program side or in the leadership side are out there and they're seeing sort of how the market's moving. That contracting officer or the contracting team is inundated with work is probably behind because of that. They're not able to come and see it. So they don't see any of that. They're just hearing people say, hey, you're not, it's not working. It's not working. It's not working. It's not working. So taking that, like that lens, I'd actually say, let's click into culture a little bit. How do you get the organization to sort of have the right ethos and cultural artifacts to be able to leverage, you know, faster contracting authorities or innovative budgets and stuff like that? Yeah. So culture is an interesting one. Um, you know, culture happens whether you like it or not. Right. So if you're not intentional about the culture you want in your organization, yep. you're just leaving it up to the to the culture gods to see what happens. Um, so some of this, I think, starts from the top with, you know, most leaders in the government and in the DOD did not come up through the ranks thinking they're going to manage major IT programs. Everything is a major IT program now, right? And if we want to start having more future-focused systems and capabilities, they have to understand enough to know that the way we need to manage and lead has drastically changed. So what do I mean by that? You don't need to be a data science expert, right? There are amazing courses on data science for leaders that are out in the private sector And I know groups like the Army and folks like that tap into that. Where Decode picks up is then the Pentagon happens, right? So you learn this great stuff and then you walk back into the building and you are just, I don't know how to apply this to a bureaucracy, right? So for a leader, the questions that you're going to ask of your acquisition team, your finance team, your legal team, your program folks, your IT folks is going to look a little different if you want the culture to change, and if you want to actually push the envelope. The best programs that we've seen with success had some wicked top cover, right? And then a lot of it comes down to what we found is like actually empowerment to say, hey, if you're frustrated with your job or we need to try something new and different, like bring it forward and, you know, let me give you the top cover you need to get it done. And I know that sounds maybe it's either overly complicated or overly simple. I'm not sure, but I'll give you a good example. Like the latter, the latter makes it the former for a lot of people, right? <laughs> totally. So we um, we're doing some work um, in a large Navy PEO, and this is one of the most innovative leaders um, that I know, uh, Rear Admiral Okano. She's just fantastic, and really wants to, you know, evolve the entire PEO and look at, you know, how do we get software updated on battleships in under twenty four hours? How do we get these capabilities to the fleet fast? One of the things that we started with, like, hey, let's actually align leadership on what that means. That miss is missing in a lot of organizations. Like, what does it mean to be innovative? What does it mean? That's an overused word. What does that mean to be like, what's success there? And then let's go look at the people, the process, all of those things in the main value stream and say, here's where the bodies are buried. 
So one of the things we found is, you know, there's a part of the organization that the process for software, pushing software and the process for installing a brand new radar system is the same thing. And it's six months. And the the team there is frustrated. They want to move faster. It's a lot of paperwork. They never knew they were empowered to say, hey, we actually think you could tailor this and this could be done differently. And so, you know, that's kind of just a very in the weeds example, but that empowerment to say, hey, here's a, here's an idea. I think that that largely lacks across the, you know, a, a bureaucracy. Yeah. I think that's a, it's a really interesting point on, hey, nobody knew they weren't empowered because nobody asked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it highlights, you know, the challenge of both like the leader and the follower to, to sort of continue. And maybe that is the cultural sort of takeaway is, hey, it's not just the leader. It's the team as well to push. And if the team's, you know, continuing to service and push, the leader can make available. Um, I think a lot of times folks look at a leader as someone who's sort of got to be like the all-seeing oracle and be able to answer any question and spot any issue. And like, it's a pretty hearty burden for a single person. <laughs> Especially with the size of these organizations. How on yeah. earth would they ever know that that was a problem? That's right. right? That's right. They're not worried about it. So that's, it's really interesting, right? So you look at the challenge in a large sort of industrial age organization, hyper bureaucratic. Hey, you know, we don't sometimes think even think about ways to move faster because we don't even think those tools are available. We don't think it's possible. We make up a bunch of assumptions and then, you know, we take, what our actual authorities allow us to do, and we assume away like 50, 60, 70% of them down to some sort of lowest common denominator, flip that on its head now and look at, you know, we started with that exemplar of, of Silicon Valley, you know, and defense tech and started, and, you know, just pure play yeah. sort of venture back tech who sort of the opposite, like more often than not doesn't read rules. Like if somebody says no, they're like, oh, I'll need, I'll find a way. Like I want to, I bet I can, I bet I can build into that and are, you know, have a reputation for sort of really wanting to move fast. So six months for a software update is like absurd to, to most of us. Yeah. How do you start to take an organization where until somebody realized that everyone was like, oh, too bad. I guess we're doing a software update twice a year. And another organization that's like, yeah, Hey, we do like seven an hour and we're just slinging it. Completely different risk tolerance, completely different sort of like cultural artifacts and ethos. How do we start to marry that together? So what do you start, what do you see in that commercial side? What are you talking to those organizations about to even get them ready to think about trying to plug in to just the beast that is the building? Oh, a thousand percent. So we have advised over 200 companies now at this point. So you name the nice. flavor. Look at you. Congrats. <laughs> Thanks. You name the flavor. We've seen it, right? Yep. Um, the ones that succeed the most have buy-in in the organization all the way up to the board. The board's usually where it starts getting wonky on these tech companies. So, but what we see a lot is, hey, we hired, we hired a federal sales, like a VP of federal sales and they're on an island and they're off to the races and they're going to come back and they're going to tell you all the things we just talked about and you're not going to believe them. Right. You're like that. We can, we can, our, our software is special. 
I know you're saying the government's hard, but we're special enough. It's going to be different this time. It's not. It's just not. Um, so some of it starts with, hey, let's just level set on expectations on what is it you're trying to accomplish with the government market. You know, if you if your VC is expecting you to punch out and sell in a year, this might not be the place. But <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But if you really want to go capture, I mean, it's large dollars. It's more secure dollars in an economic downturn, which is why yeah, it's a pretty sticky market if you can punch into it. Yeah. Uh, once you get past the moat with the crocodiles, that castle's pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, so, but we have had companies that applied to our program, like we need to see $3 million in revenue in under six months. And like, you're going to see $0 revenues in under six months. You know, that's not how this game works. Yeah. So some of it's starting there, but then the biggest challenge is the companies that actually understand that most folks in the organization should have an understanding of the market are going to do really well. So what do I mean? If you just have a VP of federal and they go to their marketing team and they're like, I need to market to the government. It's a little bit different. And they tell them to pound sand. We see that all the time. It's not going to work. So how does the marketing team need to think a little bit different? Um, How you're pricing your product commercially might totally hose you on the government side. Or if you don't understand that you start throwing slinging discounts you're going to get yourself sideways. Like, let's just get that on lock. Um, We know the market's harder. You can't just charge more for the hell of it. Let's talk about that. Let's talk to the engineering team, right? You have to meet compliance. This is where you guys play. And how do we do that quickly? And how do we make sure that we're continuously up to speed on like all the requirements that get in the way in the government market? But don't, you know, a VP of federal walking in like, I'm going to sell to the IC and it's never talked to their IT team about where the tech stack is, you're dead on arrival too. Yep. So Yeah, it's it's funny though to hear you bring that up because what, what we've seen as well is, you know, we've run into a number of little large, you know, unicorn sort of status enterprise SaaS companies that have, uh, you know, we always make the joke, it's like the two-man band on yeah. the Fed team. And it really is around expectations and just reality on resources and making sure that, you know, whether it's the executive leadership team or the board or whatever is able, is aware and is accepting and making a commitment that they'll deploy those resources in support of that team. Or you meet some really sad people trying to sell tech from those companies. I mean, and they ultimately end up laying off their entire federal team yep. here if they don't understand some of that. Yep. And, you know, I think it's, um, you see some really sad, I just pictured a corner of like VPs of emerging tech, just sucking their thumbs and crying in the corner. Uh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I mean, think about too, right? Like if I think part of it is, I mean, part of it's like an actual national security issue, not to overstate it, but if you can't, you can't find ways to marry this up you're creating or you're making the boogeyman that like, Hey, DOD is not an actual viable market for commercial tech. You're making the boogeyman real, which like we, it's the same thing. Like if three people say it, it makes it true. But if we are not finding ways to communicate across those constituencies and have meaningful conversations and manage on both sides, it's really, really challenging for, the broader national security innovation base, tech base to actually move forward. And that's where I'm super interested on, like, you know, as you're looking at those two, like, 
What are ways we can be thinking about how to bring them together? So if you were the mediator, sort of what's that look like? Because you guys are at that really unique position in the market. Yeah. I mean, there's a number of things. I mean, one, it is always really fascinating when you bring, let's say we bring together a round table of tech companies and we introduce every rank, every function, and we're very clear this is not for contracts. This is for kind of market research. But the eye-opening experience that is for government folks of just, I didn't even know the art of the possible because it's so freaking hard to keep up with the pace, right? Um, But I think more folks in the government getting out and seeing the tech is important. I don't want innovation theater where you're just, you know, tech petting zoos, right? Unless you're very clear about what the company can expect. But right now we're still relying on the contracting staff to do this market research in a lot of cases. And I can tell you, I used to do that job. Um, I had to check the box on the market research and you know what I did? I Googled it. So like heaven forbid, if I, I would say artificial intelligence, do they have a government landing page? Nope. Okay. Not viable out. Cause I didn't know any better at that time. Now teaching people not to do my past sins, right? (laughs) Like, but that's part of it. But then if we can help, on all those levers say, okay, here's the business model that this these companies have to operate under. Here's where you could make small adjustments today, not waiting for reform so that you're making it easier to get them in. Let's start doing this. Hey, tech company, I know this is how you operate. If you made these three small adjustments, they would have a better chance of buying you. Let's and like small what, sort of incremental steps, just hey, take a little bit of a trust fall forward. Totally. And I know that sounds simple, but the other big thing is it's actually we put a big reliance, I think, right now, and the talk is around these innovation hubs, and they have to be the ones that are engaging with the non-traditionals. When I started decode, DIUX 1.0 didn't exist, right? And the idea was I can hack acquisitions in a normal program. A program that's already, you know, a program of record, just let me at it. And I'll teach the company how to go have that conversation. And we're yep. just going to, we're going to jam that tech in. That's how it used to be. So that's still a way, right? Um, so I don't want an over-reliance on the innovation hubs being the sole groups trying to bring it in and scale it. But man, if you plan from day one on where that thing needs to go and start having the conversation with the innovation catchers, the world of difference it would make, right? I'll tell you one more story is there's um, a great, so same um, different part of the Navy, but a really great program within this office that is finding tech, they're prototyping it, it's going great. The catchers that would pull that tech into their program and get it onto a fleet thought, I have to sole source everything to the shipbuilder. I can't actually contract that. And it's not that they want to do it. They're all pretty upset about it, to be frank. But we we did a innovative procurement tactics. So they understood they actually could. And all of a sudden that gateway's open. So it's the catchers. We have to focus on the catchers a little bit more. I think that's a really, a really good reminder of understanding the value chain and sort of the critical path that an organization takes in order to identify, to buy, to onboard, to deploy different aspects of technology. And I'd argue, right, and this is, I'm like a little bit of a, you know, kicking a dead horse here, 
But it's the same if you were going and trying to sell tech into like JP Morgan or into some big Fortune 100 healthcare company, right? There's like a finance department. There's a procurement department. There's an executive sponsor who's probably not the same person using the platform. Person using the platform asked their boss who signed something who doesn't actually know what it's getting used for. And so you've really got to kind of walk the dog through this. And it's super frustrating. And it always takes longer than you want it to. But again, it's a highly regulated industry kind of software play. The trade-off for that like brutal sales and deployment sort of process is historically high stickiness. Um, And that's where you you can start to marry. I think it's really, really interesting. You know what works for both sides? Um, Super simple tool, wildly beneficial. If you're a tech company and you're trying to sell to a program, if you are a program with an ambitious goal, map your nose. It's a stakeholder mapping. Find all the people you need to influence or the people that need to be informed or who has the ability, not necessarily the authority, but the ability to put up that blocker yep. and actually understand what they're motivated by. Like what's in it for them? So much of this is just comms and messaging, right? So if you know... Oh, yeah. Contracting is going to say no, which they're always the scapegoat, right? But let, let's talk about legal picker, picker poison. Yep. What's in it for them? Why would they be interested in this? And how can I actually get them on board? If you have that mapping, you're even stickier, right? So same with the, with the tech companies, right? If you understand who's in the sphere of influence, the number of times you see the leader in charge say, yeah, I want to do this. Hey, action officers and team go make it happen. And then it just, you know, they'll block you. Not necessarily malicious, but they're busy. Um, But you understand the sphere of influence is super important. I'll tell you, uh, back when I was on actually like selling tech and um, we're doing the prototyping work, um, the contractors that were doing acquisition support hold way more power than you think they do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Know who's supporting them. Find all of those people. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's right. It's some of it is persona mapping and it's understanding how is this going to happen. And it goes back to what you talked about like in the beginning is getting folks to sort of understand each other yeah. and being able to not just communicate, but also, Hey, I can deliver this or I can structure this in a way that's going to make it easy for a person because I understand the process that they're going to have to go through. Cool. I can put a little bit of art with my scientific sales process and I can try to weave that. And then you get into a little bit of, I mean, it's just trade crap, but think about it. If, if you're sitting there and you're you know, Meg Dekeo, the contracting officer, and you've got 50 tasks that are all screaming for your attention. And one of them is, you know, high payoff, high priority, but it's going to be the easiest one to do by an order of magnitude. It's already configured the right way. Probably going to pick that one to go. Yeah, right? Like, get, yeah. get the win off the board there. I think that's a really, you know, and that's where you go back to kind of that empathy we talked about in the beginning. It's like, understand what you're actually asking the human being to do. And then well, find a way to enable them. You know, I say one of the easiest, fastest changes is rather than walking in and saying, can you do this? It's how can we do this? Then they're bought in. All the difference in the world. It Find is a path the, to yes. It is a difference in the lawyer saying, 
F off. No, no. Or yeah, let me think about that. And maybe we can get. Yep. I love it. All right. Last question. We turn the, uh, the final corner here. Uh, okay. This is the this is the only structured part of the uh, the pod. All right, so you're queen for a day. You yep. can change something about this market. You snap your fingers, you change it. It's immediately fixed, and it works. What is it, and why? Oh uh, wait, when you say market, we talked about two. Am I the tech market or am I the government market? You are the defense tech market. Hashtag Venn diagram. Yeah. Have you seen our website? Check it out. There's a Venn diagram. <laughs> no, I was like, oh my God, now, now I got it. Look at that. Go look at the marketing. If I was queen for a day and I snapped my fingers. Well, I will tell you what I, I said to an assistant secretary today. I said, if we went to every major ACAP program and we overhauled the solicitation to be outcomes-based requirements and outcomes based budgeting what a world we could have so if i could budget for ship detection in the south china sea and i got the money whether it's a drone if it's a bald eagle it doesn't matter i can i have flexibility to change out the tech right now everything is so prescriptive changing the way we write our requirements and our budget submissions and it worked that's what i would do outcomes people yeah, love that. Well, look, this was, uh, I think this is one of those conversations that you and I could probably have for like five straight hours and we have before, right? Like this is, there's <laughs> yeah. so much to unpack here. I want to thank you. I know you're super busy. Um, congrats on all the success that Decode's had and is about to have. And uh, could be more excited to have you on the show spending some time with us. So thank you, Meg. Back at you. Uh, you're filling a very important niche um, in that critical path. Thanks for listening. Wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes. So check them out to learn more about Second Front and what we're up to. Stay weird. Stay weird.